service. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Hey, discos. Need a little more Disgraceland in your life? Just a touch to get you through? Yeah, me too. This is the podcast that comes after the podcast. Welcome to Disgraceland, the after party. Welcome to the Disgraceland bonus episode, a little thing we like to call the after party. This is the show after the show, the party after the party, the bridge to get you from one full episode of Disgraceland to the other, the backyard dig into the dirt. On this episode, we are talking about the past episode of Disgraceland on the Mamas and the Papas, Mama Cass Elliot, and specifically about a relationship to the previous Disgraceland episode subject, Charles Manson. We're also discussing dying on stage, literally cover songs that are better than the originals. Alfred Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese, Bruce Springsteen, and as usual, a whole lot of Rosie to round us up. All right, before we get into listener calls, texts, and emails, let's get into it. Cass Elliot, or Mama Cass Elliot. Mama Cass, as she was known on stage in her group, the Mamas and the Papas, or just Cass to her friends, a.k.a. Hollywood's den mother, was the subject of our last episode of Disgraceland. And the reason I wanted to explore Mama Cass as a subject wasn't because I'm a massive fan of hers as either a solo artist or personality or a singer in the Mamas and the Papas, more on that later, but rather because of Cass Elliot's involvement in one of the biggest true crimes in American history, the murder of her friend, Sharon Tate, and four others at Sharon Tate's rented home. Sharon Tate, of course, was a huge star, so she knew lots of A-list celebrities like Mama Cass, so it wasn't for this reason that I wanted to explore Cass Elliot. It was specifically because of an anecdote I read in the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill, a book I spoke extensively about in our last bonus episode. O'Neill got to this story about Cass from another book, the autobiography of actor Michael Caine, entitled, What's It All About? As the story goes, Caine, again, in his autobiography, tells the story of him meeting Sharon Tate and Charles Manson at the same party. Once again, Michael Caine tells the story of being at a party, and at that party, he met Sharon Tate and Charles Manson. This is an incredible fact that made my jaw drop when I read it. I instantly set out to find Michael Caine's book, and it, of course, is out of print, and that got my spidey senses up. I, I was like, why can't I find this? It's Michael Caine. He's a big actor. This shouldn't be hard to get. But not only is it out of print, it's super hard to find. When I did track it down, it was not cheap. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I am naturally suspicious, and I wonder if this anecdote about this incredible story 
of the mastermind of one of the crimes of the century being present at the same party as his victims, I wondered if this story was being suppressed. I'll never know. Uh, what I do know is that the party in question, where Michael Caine says that he met Charles Manson and Sharon Tate, and, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, he also met at this party, or so he says, Wojtek Frykowski and Abigail Folger and Jay Sebring, all victims of Charles Manson's. Uh, all those introductions happened at, drumroll please, Mama Cass Elliott's home in Hollywood. Holy shit. So a little more digging into Mama Cass's life, and it's revealed that her arrest in London in 1967 wasn't really about stolen bath supplies from a hotel, as was reported, but was actually because authorities wanted to grill Cass on her international drug-smuggling boyfriend, Pick Dawson, a character who is also at the center of Tom O'Neill's reporting on the Helter Skelter murders and his disruption of Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter motive, which I get into in part two of the Cass story that's coming up next in your feed. Cass Elliott, so damn interesting. Who knew? I didn't. I never really paid attention to the Mamas and the Papas. Their music was everywhere and as such, not really interesting to me. It was also music that old people seemed to like. I get it, old people can like good music too. Hell, to many of you, I'm old people. But when the Mamas and the Papas broke, they were young people. <laughs> and their music was for young people. But old people instantly liked it. And one of the few artists, the Mamas and the Papas, of the 1960s that bridged the generation gap in an era when the generation gap could not have been wider. And this little tidbit intrigued me, and it got me thinking. As a parent, it's plain to see now that there isn't really much of a generation gap, when it comes to culture anyways. I mean, aside from things that are appropriate and inappropriate, my eight-year-old walks around in ACDC t-shirts and listens to Metallica, and he, he loves Metallica. He loves The Mandalorian. I love Metallica, and I love The Mandalorian. Hell, my four-and-a-half-year-old loves Bluey, and I like Bluey. As I said earlier, I'm old people. One of the things that I thought was cool about my wife's parents when I met them was that they watched the same TV that my wife did despite the age difference. As a proud card-carrying member of Generation X, let me tell you that this was very far from my reality growing up. My parents not only hated, ridiculed, and disapproved of the music and movies that I watched, they actively tried to get me to not listen to that music or watch those movies. It had nothing to do, I don't think, with tastes or family values or anything like that. It just wasn't something that parents approved of. Oh, your 14-year-old listens to Metallica? That band must suck. What are you watching? The Breakfast Club? Turn this garbage off. Is that a Stephen King book you're reading? Isn't that the hack writer whose crappy books get turned into crappier movies? This is just a small sample of the dynamic between mine and my parents, and I'm sure my friends who I grew up with, the dynamic they had with their parents as well. I didn't have any friends whose parents were into cool shit. Even my dad, who was a musician, who was into cool shit. It was hard, when I was a young kid anyway, to get on the same page about what I was listening to. I was in the metal. He was like, Judas Priest is fucking stupid. What are you doing? You know what I mean? It took a while. And it was because of this generation gap, this huge gap. So... The internet obviously destroyed the generation gap, and so too did my fellow Gen X parents, who probably, in an effort to right the wrong of our parents, probably as parents ourselves, we try too hard to relate to our kids over culture. And by listening to the same music, turning them on, I mean, my kid listens to Metallica because I play Metallica, you know? And we want them to consume the same film and television and bond with them over it when it's appropriate, obviously. Uh, but this... This will backfire. I'm sure of it. I don't exactly know how, but I know it will. 
When Metallica and John Hughes' Johnny Bender and Stephen King are no longer subversive, kids are naturally going to find something else to subvert the approval of their parents with, and that, I fear, will have unintended and dire consequences. But before that, like I said, mamas and the papas, appealing to kids and their parents in the 1960s, a common ground that seemed impossible given the time and the zeitgeist. It really intrigued me, and I wanted to dive into the mamas and the papas and kind of figure out why. And turns out it's obvious. Their music was awesome. Even if it didn't appeal to me, even if I didn't like it, it's undeniably, objectifiably great music. You can't fuck with the mamas and the papas, okay? But not my bag, you know, whatever. I don't know. We start the episode of the mamas and the papas. I talked about dire consequences a minute ago with a very consequential stage performance by Cass Elliott that we're going to get into after the break. Stay tuned. All right, we open the Cass Elliott episode in Las Vegas with Mama Cass headlining her much-anticipated Las Vegas residency. The crowd was packed, like jammed, packed with celebrity friends, Sammy Davis, Peter Lawford, even Jimi Hendrix was there, Mia Farrow, huge stars. Uh, At the time, Cass Elliott, it was, she was just, she was the shit. She was a huge personality, figuratively and literally. She was a massive star. She was on TV all the time. She was now out of the Mamas and the Papas, and the crowd was hyped to see what she was going to do at this Vegas review, essentially, this Vegas residency, night after night. I think it was like a two-week run or something like that. And she was getting paid a shit ton of money. And she bombed. She went on stage. She was high. I believe she was sick as well. It, didn't matter. She was a fucking mess. She couldn't sing. She performed horribly, so bad that the rest of her residency was canceled, and her career at that moment was in serious jeopardy because of it. So it got me thinking about some of the most infamous rock star stage flops that I've become aware of throughout the researching and writing of Disgraceland. Off the top of my head, the first thing, the first person I think of is the king of the stage meltdown, Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses. Probably because we talked to Axel in the last After Party episode, but I'm thinking now of his St. Louis onstage meltdown where a full-fledged violent riot breaks out. I wrote about this in my book, covered it in the two-part episode of Disgraceland on Guns N' Roses as well. If you're unfamiliar with this incident, I'm not going to get into it here, but just go back and check out these episodes. What a piece of work, Axel Rose. My God. On the other end of the spectrum, Amy Winehouse has a couple of serious live meltdowns on her resume, one of which was one of her last performances, and we detail that in our Amy Winehouse episode. You can check that out as well. It's totally a lot different than the Guns N' Roses stories. Um, But it got me thinking about what else I'm unaware of for stage meltdown. So I did a quick Google search, and holy shit, so many artists obviously melt down on stage. These are high-pressure situations with artists who are in pressure cooker environments on the road, away from their families, oftentimes addicted to drugs and alcohol with unruly fans. This isn't all on the artists. It isn't all on the fans. I'm not going to litigate these breakdowns. They are highly interesting. I I encourage you to Google rock stars losing their shit on stage and watch some of the videos. 
my God, the videos. Josh Homey, Queens of the Stone Age, Courtney Love, Billy Corgan. There's too many to mention. And it's almost like the rock star stage meltdown is, is trite. It's commonplace. The rock star dying on stage list, however, literally dying, is far more interesting. And we've talked about this on some of our episodes, too. Not, not as much as you would think. Um, I think Spade Cooley from the first, I think that's the first season of Disgraceland, maybe the second. If he didn't die on stage, he died, like, side stage or just after stepping off stage. Um, and, of course, Mark Sandman from Morphine here in Boston. He died on stage in Italy, I believe. Um, these stories are a bit too dark to get into here in this bonus episode. But trust me, it's worth a Google. It's it's a rabbit hole um, that I found to be very interesting. Uh, happened way more, uh, with way more frequency than I would have thought. Uh, especially when you broaden it out beyond musicians and you just start talking entertainers who died on stage. Harry Houdini. I didn't know that. Anyways, check it out. Uh, also worth a Google is covers of the Mamas and the Papas songs, okay? One of the best moments in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to me, is the scene where Cliff picks Rick up from the studio lot. And the LA, the LA sun is setting. It's the magic hour. It looks beautiful. All the production hands and the talent are going home for the day. We get to see a part of Hollywood that we seldom see on screen, or at least we seldom see it portrayed with this much beauty. Uh, and the song that's playing is... The Mamas and the Papas, California Dreaming. It's perfect. It's perfect for this scene. But it's not the Mamas and the Papas version of their song. It's Jose Feliciano's cover of the song. It's the perfect cue for this montage. And I, of course, prefer this cover to the original, which begs the obvious question, what cover versions of songs are better than their originals? Is the band's version of Atlantic City better than Bruce Springsteen's original? Is Bruce Springsteen's cover of The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine better than Frankie Valli's original? Is Frankie Valli's My Sharia More better than the original by Stevie Wonder? The answer on that last one is a hard no, by the way, but you get the question. Let me know which covers are better than the originals. You can call or text me to let me know. I'm at 617-906-6638 or email me at disgracelandpod at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, all at disgracelandpod. Just like Beth from the 360 who texted the following. Hey, Jake, listening to the Manson episode right now, fun fact, in college, two of my BFFs lived in a home at the bottom of Topanga Canyon that was previously a Manson family crash pad. The house is mentioned in the Helter Skelter book, and although the book did not indicate that Manson himself ever stayed there, some members of the family did. The house is no longer there. It was behind the feed store, still there, at the bottom of Topanga and PCH, and has been torn down. It had a huge treehouse out back, and we had some banging parties at that place. Love your show, Beth. Beth! Thanks for sharing. I love these stories. I love the connection between you listeners and the topics that we cover. The personal connections are awesome. Keep them coming. Text them to me. Call me. Leave the voicemails, 617-906-6638. Beth, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, wherever, Twitter, at Pod. And Beth, we will get you a free Disgraceland t-shirt for sharing that amazing story. Thank you so much. So, discos, you can also, like I said, leave a voicemail, just like this gentleman from Philly. Hey, Jake, it's your good boy, Ant, uh, from the Philly area, at Paschetti on Instagram. And you were talking about uh, the Beastie Boys. And when you said, uh, ask for Janice, I immediately went to Paul's Boutique. And then when you played the commercial, I was reciting it right along with your podcast. 
for the best in men's clothing, call Paul's Boutique. As for Jenny, so I suggest the number is 418-1043. That's Paul's Boutique, and they're in Brooklyn. My favorite Beastie Boys album is Paul's Boutique, and my favorite Beastie Boys moment. I saw them headline Lollapalooza, co-headline the Juggernauts with Smashing Pumpkins um, it, in Philly. It was going to be the Beasties before the Pumpkins. And I'm smoking a joint. It's 1992. I'm smoking a joint. My boys out in public, but we're protected from security by hundreds of like-minded individuals at the pit. And this beautiful lady smoking a joint with us. And my friend's like, talk to her, talk to her. I'm like, why should I talk to this woman? It's pointless. In a second, the Beastie Boys are going to take the stage, and we're going to get ripped apart like wild dogs. And sure enough, that happened. And at the end of the show, during the encore, during sabotage, this guy's flying through the air, hits me in the head with his boot. I'm only five foot eight. I go down. I was going to be trampled to death. But again, one kind soul, big tall motherfucker like you, Jake, picked me up by my shoulders and got me back on my feet. So I love the Beastie Boys. I love you. Keep up the great work and uh, rock and roll, man. Talk to you. All right. Great story. Love this. Love the connection to the Beastie Boys from the previous After Party episode. And love that this dude described me as a big, tall motherfucker. So bonus points for that. So if you've got a burning question, comment, whatever it is, if you just want to be heard, man, call me, text me, 617-906-6638. Hit me up on social at DisgracelandPod or email DisgracelandPod at gmail.com. What I'm reading, what I'm watching, and what I'm listening to in three, two, Rockerola. Hey, do you love bad movies? I'm talking about movies where Jason Statham saves the day or a lifetime thriller about a killer flight instructor or basically anything made in the 1980s that was set in the not too distant future. Now, if all of that seems up your alley, then you are going to love the podcast, How Did This Get Made? I've been listening to this podcast, it seems like, for forever, and I keep going back to it because it is hysterical. Every episode, comedians Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, and Jason Mansukis dissect the best, worst films ever made and their often bizarre production stories. Some of you guys are going to know Paul, June, and Jason, the host, from many of their appearances in films, animation, uh, television, on stage, these uh, improv. These guys are great, great, great comics. Uh, and they're just funny as hell. And these episodes are hysterical. They just did this episode on this cult action movie called Samurai Cop. All right, just that title alone tells you that it's going to be funny to digest. Where they, the star of this movie, of course, is a stuntman goes to prison after filming because they stole a Rembrandt painting at gunpoint from a church. Of course, the best part of this podcast is these guys watch these movies so that you don't have to. And sometimes even they're joined by hilarious guests, Seth Rogen, Conan O'Brien. Okay, I'm not the only one who thinks this show is hysterical. What are you waiting for? Go listen to How Did This Get Made, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. 
For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Alrighty, my favorite part of the show, what I'm reading and what I'm watching and what I'm listening to. I'm going to start with what I'm watching. Still on the White Lotus Season 2 tip. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail on this show now because I talk about it every week. And frankly, I feel like I'm at risk of sounding like an HBO infomercial. But I will say this. The most recent episode to me writing this right now, the most recent episode that I watched, which I think is like episode six or seven or something like that. It's uh, the episode where the subject of beauty is at the center of it. This is the most batshit insane uh, episode of this show yet. I love you, Mike White. Keep them coming. So about a month ago, I asked one of our producers here at Double Elvis, Taylor Bettinson, to compile a list for me. I, I wanted to watch a bunch of great films by a handful of select filmmakers that I really love uh, chronologically in relation to themselves. So what I mean is this. I wanted to watch how Alfred Hitchcock influenced Steven Spielberg, who then influenced Martin Scorsese. Scorsese influences Spielberg back. And you keep going and you get to the Coen brothers and Tarantino and the Andersons, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. So I wanted to see how their filmmaking influenced each other. Um, I've heard Scorsese and I've heard Spielberg talk about this a little bit. I haven't really heard much from the, the 90s guys that I love, but you know that they're influencing each other. And I wanted to see this influence um, in practice. So uh, about a month ago, I asked one of our producers here at Double Elvis, Taylor Bettinson, to compile this list for me. So I asked him, I said, hey, take the following filmmakers. Uh, I'm cutting out all the early Hollywood stuff because it's just, it's too radically different from the stuff that, that I love that happens in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the nows. So take uh, take Hitchcock and just give it to me because I want to I want to see everything I've seen by Hitchcock, right? And that's like a that's like the pre-list. That's the that's the the workout before the two a days happen. It's not the real two a days, okay? So I got the whole Hitchcock list. After that, we're now late 60s. Who's that knocking at my door? Martin Scorsese, which is 1968. Okay. From there, that's the starting point. Give me Scorsese, Spielberg, the Coen brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, 
Wes Anderson and list out, and those are five of my favorite filmmakers. That's why I gave him those. List out for me all of their movies as they were released chronologically in one list. Give me Who's That Knocking at My Door by Scorsese in 1967. Topaz by Hitchcock in 1969, Duel by Spielberg in 1971, Frenzy by Hitchcock in 72, Boxcar Bertha, Scorsese. Okay, and then we keep going down the list. We get to Taxi Driver, 76. We're going to see how Taxi Driver may or may not have had any influence at all on Spielberg's next film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We get into the 80s. Here come the Coen brothers with Blood Simple in 1984. Then you got Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom by Spielberg in 84, After Hours by Scorsese. You get up to the 90s. You've got more Coens, Miller's Crossing, Scorsese's got Cape Fear, now Reservoir Dogs in 92, True Romance in 93. I know he didn't direct it, okay? All right, but I have it in there anyhow. All right, and then Wes Anderson, okay? Bottle Rocket, 1996. Boom, here we go. P.T. Anderson, Boogie Nights, 1997. We still got a bunch of Scorsese and Spielberg peppered in here as well. So my point is, I wanted to watch all of these movies, <laughs> like the insane person that I am, and I've roped my wife into this too, to watch them chronologically to see if I can glean any influence from one filmmaker to the next. And uh, so far, um, I'm two, <laughs> two films in. All right. I started with Marnie. I went back a little bit before the list actually started. I started with Marnie by, by Hitchcock in 1964 because it's one of the few Hitchcock movies that I hadn't seen yet. Did not like it. Didn't love this movie. Um, I, I just, whatever, I'm not going to get into it. People probably love it. and A million of you can write me and tell me how great it is and how I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. You're probably right. I just didn't like it. Who's that knocking at my door? Scorsese, 1967. I'm about to get into Topaz by Hitchcock as well. And then I'm just, I'm cruising from there on out. Of course, I've seen probably half of these movies, if not more. Um, but I've never seen them in this context because I obviously wasn't alive and going to films in 1972, 73, etc. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm on a wild tangent here. But um I guess my point is I'm going to be talking to you a lot about movies in the coming in the coming episodes of After Party. Um, you'll be hearing me recommend these films. Um, and I'm thinking even if you're interested, hit me up on social or email me or call me or whatever, text me, and maybe I'll even share this list. Maybe I'll make it public. Um, I'm sure that's not too hard to do. And if I can't figure it out, Taylor can. But uh, yeah, don't watch Marnie and watch Who's That Knocking at My Door. And don't send me angry letters about any of this stuff. Okay, that's what I'm watching. What I'm reading, Bruce Springsteen's All the Songs, and I'm going to butcher the author's names, and I apologize, Philippe Margotin and Jean-Michel Gesden. I think that's how you say those names. Um, but I'm, I, I, know I'm, I know I did it wrong. Anyways, apologies to the authors, but this is a great book. Um, it is just a bare nuts and bolts uh, attack at all, every single one of Springsteen's songs and all of the facts and data surrounding the recording and the writing of those tunes. I'm obviously reading this uh, because I am researching, you guessed it, my Bruce Springsteen episode. But what crimes did Bruce Springsteen commit, you ask? Aside from Lucky Town, I'm not sure, but this episode will have a fairly unique angle on the boss that I'm pretty stoked on, so stay tuned. Okay, what I'm listening to. And the answer is, of course, 
Christmas music. It's post-Thanksgiving, which means it's officially Christmas season. The tree went up three days after. The Bing Crosby records came out, as did the eggnog and the plantation rum. Bing Crosby's Christmas classics, you can't miss with that record. Frank Sinatra's Sinatra Ultimate Christmas, you can't miss with that record. And my favorite Christmas album, I think of all time, Ella Fitzgerald's Swinging Christmas. I'll reveal more of my Christmas listening in the coming bonus episodes, but I'm always on the lookout for great Christmas music, so send me your recommendations. Send them through at Pod to all the social channels. Email DisgraceLandPod at gmail.com. Text me. Leave me a voicemail, 617-906-6638. I want the Christmas Rex. Hit me. I'll be back with more when we come back in the next bonus episode. But for right now, I'm going to have a sip of tea, take a minute, and then get back into my second favorite part of these bonus episodes right after this. All right, Discos, this brings another bonus episode of Disgraceland to an end. Thank you for listening. Next up, part two on the Mamas and the Papas Mama cast, Elliot, and the thorough disruption of the Helter Skelter motive via Tom O'Neill. Thank you, Tom. Uh, So you guys have a safe rest of your week. Enjoy your friends and family as we start the most wonderful time of the year. And by all means, hit me up if you feel like blabbing, 617-906-6638 on the text and the voicemail, and disgracelandpod at gmail.com, and at disgracelandpod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Now, for my moment of zen, in honor of Cass Elliott, a reading from the 1957 Greater Los Angeles phone book, by yours truly. Dina Lee. Paradise Cove, Glenwood, 7-2523. Dixon, Anetta, Globe, 6-8160. Dixon, Harold, Glenwood, 7-2140. Dodd, Dean, Glenwood, 7-2381. Doucette, Alexander, Glenwood, 7-2343. Downs, Arthur, Globe, 6-2476. Dreyer, Lester and Ann C, Globe, 6-2227. Drift in, 2278 Pacific Coast Highway, do drift into the drift in. Globe, 6-2555. Quit talking and start mixing. Cut it!